Okay, turn with me, please, to Matthew 6. And we are looking at verses 16 to 18. We started this passage last week, so let's read it and review. We didn't do much in this passage, so we'll do a little review, and then we will continue on. It says, Whenever you fast... Do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now as we said last week, in this particular portion the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is confronting the hypocritical religion of the Pharisees. And he picks out three illustrations of that, giving, praying, and fasting. We've already seen what he had to say about giving and praying. Now we come to the last one, which is fasting. And this is the area of spiritual discipline. It is an area of spiritual discipline, which is perhaps the least understood by most evangelical Christians. Uh, and, you know, they just sort of ignore it. But just because a particular passage is not practiced uh, or it seems to be detached from the rest of Scripture, it seems to be uh, unpracticed by most modern American evangelicals, doesn't mean that we shouldn't study it, understand it, and seek to apply it in our own spiritual walk. So that's what I want us to do. Uh, The Pharisees and the scribes were involved in many fast for various purposes. It was a very common part of their religious system. Uh, But it needed to be corrected. But before we look at Jesus' correction, we have to understand what fasting itself is all about. Uh, Jesus' statement simply assumes that his listeners understood all about fasting, and they did, uh, because it was such an integral part of their religious practice. But fasting in the church today is a little understood factor of religious or spiritual experience. Uh, As we said last week, the Bible never deals with fasting on a physical level. That that is, you know, fasting in order to lose weight, as is common in the American culture, is not the issue in Scripture. Uh, I'm not denying that there may be some virtue to fasting to lose weight. Uh, certainly a means of combating the sin of gluttony, uh, but it's still not the biblical definition of fasting. Uh, If you're on some kind of fast for physical reasons, don't think that you have the right to feel spiritual because you don't. It doesn't have any spiritual value at all just to fast to lose weight. Um, Legitimate fasting always has had a spiritual purpose and is never practiced as having some virtue in and of itself. Uh, And what you find is that many people are either indifferent about fasting or they are superstitious about it. Um, And so if we can correct those two perspectives, hopefully you'll gain a better understanding of the proper use of fasting in the Christian life. Uh, Don't be superstitious about it. Uh, It isn't going to get you any kind of super spirituality. Uh, In and of itself, it doesn't isolate itself to be a spiritual virtue. It's always connected to something else. And we'll see that as we go through this study. Uh, So we're not interested in a physical kind of fast to get a better looking body. We're not interested in a fast just for the sake of saying that you fasted. That isn't the issue. There must be a spiritual context for a fast to be biblical. And that's essential to understand. Uh, The only fast ever commanded in all the Bible. We told you this last week. What was it? It was the Day of Atonement. It was a general public national fast. On the Day of Atonement, when sacrifices of the nation were uh, given for the sins of the people for the previous years, the Jews were required to fast from sunrise to sunset. Uh, It's the only fast ever given by God as compulsory in the entire Bible. Uh, It is a fast connected with a deep, mournful spirit in confessing sin. 
that ought to give you a hint of what fasting is all about. Uh, it's never isolated from something else. It is inextricably connected to a great sense of spiritual anxiety. Uh, beyond that, the Bible never commands a fast. The New Testament never commands us to fast. And yet it fits right in with the two other things in this section. Fasting then is a personal, non-compulsory, spontaneous, voluntary act. Uh, there's no structure to fasting delineated in the scripture. Now that's where we stopped last week. Well, let's pick this up and, and see that scripture is filled with examples of many people who fasted. In the Old Testament, many faithful believers fasted. You see Moses and Samson and Hannah, David, Elijah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, many more. Uh, and in the New Testament, we're told of fasting by Anna, John the Baptist, Jesus, Paul, and numerous others. But the only fast commanded in Scripture was the one connected to the Day of Atonement. All of those others by those people were voluntary. Over in Matthew 9, 14 and 15, the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and they said, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus' response to them was this. He said, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Uh, Jesus is saying, this is not the time to fast, because we can't mourn while the bridegroom is present. Uh, so then, what's fasting connected to? Morning. Morning. Uh, fasting is always a corollary to some deep spiritual anxiety. That's the point. And Jesus is saying, we're not fasting because there's no reason to fast. In other words, apart from some morning as a source which induces it, fasting is meaningless. It is a corollary to something else, not an end in itself. People who say, oh, I decided to fast and I had such spiritual sensitivities. I experienced such spiritual heights. No, fasting is a response, not an inducement to something. And so Jesus says, we don't fast because there's nothing to fast about. But notice that he goes on to say, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, so now we are living in the period when the bridegroom, Jesus, is taken away from us. Uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb will occur when we are joined with Christ, but until that time, Jesus says there will be fasting. Why? Because there will be spiritual struggle and there will be anxiety in his absence. And during that time, we will fast. And throughout the history of the church, there have been times when fasting was the right response. What am I saying? There is a priority in fasting. Uh, it has a priority place in this age. It belongs in this era. Uh, it didn't belong to the disciples when Jesus was present. Uh, it belongs to this time and this place and to us in this hour. So let's begin looking at what Jesus had to say about fasting and these verses break down into two parts, pretentious fasting and proper fasting. Uh, so let's begin by looking what Jesus said about pretentious fasting. Look again at verse 16. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Notice that Jesus starts off by saying what? Whenever you fast. What's, what do you notice about that? There's an assumption, isn't there? It supports the understanding of fasting was not commanded, but when it is practiced, it's to be regulated according to the principles Jesus gives here. Jesus assumes you will fast. Uh, but he doesn't command any specific time or duration or type. Uh, it is just assumed as a part of our spiritual life. Now, first of all, the word fast means to abstain from food, to not eat. 
Fasts were sometimes total and sometimes partial. Uh, and ordinarily, only water was drunk. Uh, a total fast meant that the individual ate no food, but only drank water. A partial fast meant that the individual skipped certain meals or refused to eat certain foods. Daniel did that. He and his friends ate only vegetables and drank water in order to maintain their kosher dietary restrictions. But a fast does not mean going without water. Please understand that. <laughs> now, by the time Jesus arrives, fasting had become a great part of the Jewish society. What started as a true, spontaneous, voluntary, heartfelt fast had ended up at a point of hypocritical, self-righteous demonstration in front of other people where they would make this tremendous pretense, make, made themselves look wretched and miserable and dismal as they could, and then paraded around letting everyone know they were fasting so they would think they were super spiritual. Why did they do that? Because, frankly, fasting's hard, isn't it? I mean, if you just say, well, I'm going to fast, What's the first thing you start thinking about? <laughs> food. <laughs> food. All you can think about is eating. Uh, it's true. The moment you say, I'm going to fast, suddenly the only thing you can think about is food. So, so there must be a very natural and yet a supernatural inducement to fasting to take away that anxiety there. But the Jews were fasting for every reason, and their basic motive was to be seen by men. Uh, it was all about their own personal ego trip to try to be seen as super spiritual and super pious. It's kind of interesting also that in Luke 18.12, it says that the Pharisees fasted twice a week. Uh, you remember Jesus' parable about the Pharisee who came into the temple to pray? And he said, God, I thank you. I'm not like other people, swindlers unjust adulterers or or even like this tax collector and then he said i fast twice a week i pay tithes of all that i get now that was not a biblical prescription but they had come to the place where they did that and the talmud tells us that they fasted on the second day and the fifth day of the week uh, now the obvious question is why the second day and the fifth day. And the Pharisees' answer was that it was on the second day and the fifth day that Moses went up and down Mount Sinai. Uh, their tradition told them that he went up Mount Sinai to get the law on the fifth day of the week, and he came back down on the second day of the week. And so in commemorating that, they fasted on the second and the fifth day day of the week. But as spiritual as it sounds, if you look a little closer in Jewish history, you will find out that in the city of Jerusalem, the market days were the second and the fifth day of the week. And those were the two days in the week when everyone in the countryside came to town. And so if you were going to parade your piosity, that was the time. And so on the second and the fifth day, the two market days, when the city is teeming with people and everybody's streaming into the city from the country, it was a great time, an ideal place and time for those who fasted for a public pretense to put on their act. And they would do it for spiritual pride. Uh, they would walk through the streets with their hair disheveled. They would put on old clothes. They would cover themselves with dust and ashes and they would cover their faces with white powder so they'd look pale and wan uh, from hunger. And then they would parade around the streets on market day so everyone would see how spiritual they really were. And so Jesus says, the guys who do that are a bunch of hypocrites. As you know, that word originally referred to an actor in a Greek theater who covered his face with a mask in order to appear as a certain type of character. And that's what those Pharisees were doing. 
They were making themselves appear to be pale and starving from fasting so much, trying to make themselves appear to be more spiritual than they were. Folks, <coughs> when the heart is not right, fasting is a sham and a mockery. Those whom Jesus condemned were pretentiously self-righteous. Everything they did centered around themselves. And God had no place for their motives or their thinking. And he had no part in their reward. Uh, their reward, the reward they wanted was recognition by men. And that reward was the only reward they received. And so that was pretentious fasting. But what was fasting supposed to be really like? Well, Jesus explains in verses 17 and 18, where he discusses proper fasting. So here's what he says. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. If fasting has a place in our spiritual lives, then when is it to take place? I think Jesus' statement, when you fast, clearly indicates that fasting is a normal and acceptable part of the Christian life. He assumes that his followers will fast on certain occasions, but he does not give a command or specify a particular time, a particular place, a particular method. And because, of <coughs> because the validity of the day of atonement ceased when Jesus made the once-for-all sacrifice on the cross, the single mandatory occasion for fasting has ceased to exist. So then, when should we consider fasting? Well, let me give you some thoughts from how we see fasting take place in Scripture. First, as we've already seen, fasting is primarily associated with a time of mourning or lamentation or sorrow. Unfortunately, there are some people who seem to think uh, that, that, fast, that fasting is some kind of spiritual ticket to blessing in and of itself. Uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, quote, There are some people who fast because they expect direct and immediate results from it, end quote. Uh, in other words, they have a a kind of mechanical view of fasting. Uh, they, they have a sort of penny-in-the-slot viewpoint. When I was a kid, and I know when most of you were kids in this room, it was the same way. Uh, remember, you go to businesses, almost every barbershop, and there was always a gumball machine. And you just put your penny in the slot, and you turn the little crank on the dial, and out came the gumball. Well, that's the view of some people about fasting. They think that if you want something specific from God, just fast and bingo, God will answer and give you what you want. But fasting is not a spiritual gimmick. It's not a penny in the slot. There is no merit in a fast unless that fast is a provoked fast for reasons of the heart. So then, what are some of the biblical reasons for fasting? Well, first, as we've already said, sorrow and mourning. Sorrow and mourning. In Joel 1, God sent a plague of locusts into the nation, and it destroyed the crops, and the people were in danger of starvation. And then there was a drought with no rain, and so that fires ravaged the dried-up land. And so in Joel 1.14, we're told, Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. The fast was a response to their lamentation over the situation. It was intended to demonstrate their solemn submission to and desperation to the Lord. In Nehemiah 1.4, when Nehemiah heard the word that the walls of Jerusalem were broken down, his heart was broken. And it says, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. 
when the Lord struck the child that he and Bathsheba had because of their adulterous relationship with a terrible and fatal disease. 2 Samuel 12, 16 says, David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and wept, uh, fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. I, I think all of us can identify with that. Uh, I certainly can as a parent and grandparent. I, I have a new grandson who's only a few months old, and if he was struck with a fatal disease, and the life of that little one was hanging in the balance, and I didn't know from one moment to the next whether that child would draw another breath. I know I would go before God on behalf of that grandchild, and I wouldn't even desire to eat because I would be praying for that child's life. Another reason for fasting in Scripture is during a time of overwhelming danger, a time of overwhelming danger. There were times when people were in such severe danger and they were so afraid they couldn't eat and they knew that their only protection and deliverance was God and so they would fast and they would literally cry out to God under severe danger and severe trial knowing that their only deliverance would come from him that was the case in second chronicles 20 uh, the Ammonites and the Moabites had joined together against King Jehoshaphat and the land of Judah. And from a human standpoint, the Israelites couldn't possibly win. And out of sheer fear, they go without food and they cry out to God that God would deliver them. Uh, when Queen Esther found out that Haman had developed a plot to slaughter all the Jews and Mordecai convinced her that she needed to go speak to King Ahasuerus about it, uh, he, she told her uncle Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. <clears throat> Overwhelming danger and fear was a reason why the people would fast and call on Yahweh for salvation from their enemies. Uh, there's a, there was a wonderful proclamation of a fast in Ezra. Uh, Ezra is about <coughs> to lead the people out of the Babylonian captivity. And he knows that the trip back home is going to be a dangerous journey. But listen to how he and the Jews faced the danger that they were about to enter into. Ezra 8, 21-23. He says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. Uh, he knows that they're about to cross a desert filled with gangs of robbers and thieves and enemies and those who hated Israel. And so they're fearful. But Ezra had told the king that God would protect them and would defend them against their enemies. So he admits he's embarrassed to go back and ask for troops to protect him on the trip. Uh, so instead, they fasted and sought the Lord's protection for the trip. And the Lord listened to them and protected them. Uh, when faced with danger, they fasted and trusted the Lord rather than human military might. Another reason we see fasting in the Bible is in conjunction with penitence. Penitence. When the Ninevites repented after Jonah preached to them, Jonah 3.5 tells us, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And the king ordered that no one was to eat anything, was to wear sackcloth, and he says, and call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. And then he says, who knows? God may turn 
and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Uh, Daniel 9.3 tells us that Daniel fasted while he prayed to God and confessed the sins of his people. When the Saul of Tarsus was blind after seeing the resurrected Christ in his glory on the road to Damascus, we're told in Acts 9 that while he was praying, he fasted for three days. So penitence was a reason for fasting. A fourth reason for fasting that we see in Scripture, this is a unique one, is revelation. Revelation. At times when God's people were either going to receive God's word or proclaim God's word, we frequently see a fast. Uh, in the passage we just mentioned, uh, uh, Daniel 9, not only was Daniel involved in penitence, but he was also involved in receiving revelation from God. As he studied God's word, he saw in Jeremiah's prophecy that the desolation of Jerusalem was to be 70 years. So he wanted to know more about this. So he fasted and prayed, not only confessing his and the nation's sins, but for the Lord to accomplish his purposes with the nation in terms of the desolation of Jerusalem. And then we read this, beginning in verse 21 of Daniel 9. While I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. So Daniel fasts and prays, and God hears him and sends Gabriel to give him understanding of his vision. Uh, and then starting in verse 24, Gabriel gives Daniel the revelation of the 70 weeks, which lays out the theme of the prophetic history of the world. And, and it was in conjunction with his prayer for revelation from God so that he would understand the vision that David fasted. In chapter 10, Daniel tells us about engaging in a three-week-long fast so that he could spend time in prayer to gain understanding of another vision that he had received. And again, God answered his prayer and sent an angel to explain the vision to him. So this was another occasion when Daniel needed God to give him revelation that he fasted and prayed. In Acts 10, Peter is fasting and praying when he saw a vision that all foods were now permissible to eat. And the Spirit told him to go to Cornelius the Gentile centurion with the gospel. In Exodus 24, Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and then God gave him his holy law. Both of those events were times of revelation from God to his servants and both involved fasting. Now for us today, we, no longer, we are no longer looking for some kind of special revelation from God like Daniel and Peter and Moses received. We have the completed, sufficient word of God. We don't need any additional revelation. But what we do need to do is commit ourselves to study the word so that we understand and comprehend what it means so that we can apply it to our lives. And sometimes that involves fasting. Not necessarily in the sense of deliberately not eating in an effort to gain understanding of the text, but that you, that you are so consumed with seeking to understand what God has revealed that you have no thought of stopping for food or to eat until you come to know and understand what it is that God's Word is saying. I've experienced that many times. Uh, there are many times in my own life and where I find myself studying some particularly difficult section of Scripture and I really want to understand it and I become so consumed to understand the revelation of God that I don't even stop for meals to eat. Um, not because I think, oh, I won't eat, I'll fast, and that'll help me understand this. That's not the idea at all. No, simply because I don't want to break my train of thought. Uh, if I was to stop and go eat, I would lose track of where I was in my studies, and I wouldn't 
be able to have the same clarity of thought about that issue. So I stay until I fully understand what it is that God's word is saying. You cannot allow physical food to intrude when you're hungering for the living bread. Uh, and I'm seeking to understand God's revelation and being distracted by food may cause me to miss out on that understanding. In addition to mourning and overwhelming danger and penitence and revelation, another time we see fasting in scripture is what we might call special selection or special direction. Uh, when the time came in the early church for calling special people to special tasks in spiritual leadership. Fasting was a part of it. Uh, let's see, let's look at this in Acts 13. Turn with me to Acts 13. Nothing is more important in terms of your church than selecting the leadership of that church. I can say without fear of contradiction that the biggest problem in the church is leadership. If the leadership is right, the church is right. If the leadership is wrong, the church will go wrong. So when the early church was about to select leadership and ordain people and set them aside for gospel ministry, it was not done flippantly or frivolously. It was not done politically. They didn't select people because people liked them. They didn't select people because they had a power base within the congregation or were powerful in the local community. They selected people with prayer and fasting. Uh, starting in verse 1 of Acts 13, we read, Now there were in Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. And Saul, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Tell me something. Was it any more important back then than it is now to have the right people in church leadership? No. No. Was it any more important back then than it is now to send out the right missionaries? If it was a task that demanded such intense prayer that they fasted, is it any less of a task for us? Uh, is the church any less significant today than it was back then? The answer is obviously no. And so if they were so intense in the selection of their leadership back then as to pray and fast, should we be any less intense? I don't mean that we have to all collectively do it. Uh, I mean that whenever it's time for us to consider a man for leadership in the church as an elder, or whenever we are approaching the time of our annual business meeting in which we affirm our church leadership, it should be with such prayerful intensity that we're not interested in the mundane things of life, such as eating. So that we spend some time when we would be eating in prayer for wisdom and direction in that process. Praying that God would give us the right elders, that God would give us the right pastors. In Acts 14, 23, it continued that way. Just over a chapter, 14, 23. It says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. When we ordain an elder, it's, in, it is, it's as important as when they were appointing them back then. We should be willing to skip some meals to spend that time in prayer about those matters. After all, we will be entrusting our spiritual welfare to those men. So we want to be certain that they are men whom God would have to lead us, not men who will one day rise up to become savage wolves among us. So then fasting is seen taking place in scripture in times of sorrow and mourning, times of grave danger, times of repentance and penitence, times of revelation, 
and understanding of God's word and times of special direction and selection. So there's definitely a place for fasting in our spiritual lives. Now, if you've never fasted, I don't want you to run out and start fasting just because you think it's a great spiritual thing to do. Uh, instead, think of fasting as something you consider doing during a time of mourning over some great sorrow or burden that only God can deal with. Uh, or during a time of grave danger in which only God is strong enough to remove. Uh, or when the, your sin or the sin in the life of someone very dear to you is so great that you want to spend that time lamenting that sin. If it's your sin, you're repenting of it. If it's someone else's sin, you're pleading with God to convict them of it so that they will repent. Or perhaps it is a time when you need to dedicate yourself wholly to studying God's word to understand it. Or perhaps it's a time when you need to be certain that God has selected you or someone else to serve the church in a position of leadership. But in every case in scripture where there is fasting, guess what always goes with it? Prayer. Prayer. Fasting is always connected to prayer. Fasting is consecration to God, which sets you apart to God so, so alone, so singly, that there's no need for food. Now, please understand that prayer is not always itself always necessarily linked with fasting. You can pray without fasting, but you cannot fast without praying. Uh, I've examined scripture from one end to the other, and I found no times when fasting is an activity which is done without prayer. Uh, and so fasting is not an end in itself. It is a corollary to a spiritual struggle that draws us into the presence of God. The man or woman who prays with fasting is signifying that they are truly earnest and sincere about the matter for which they are praying. Some of us pray so flippantly that we just talk words. But others are so drawn into the presence of God that the world loses its meaning. Fasting is an affirmation of intense prayer. Let me add another thought on this. Not only is prayer always linked with fasting, but true fasting always comes out of a pure heart. It is a response to a pure heart. That's so important. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean that if your heart isn't right, your fasting is a sham. You don't have a pure heart. You're not really fasting as a corollary to intense prayer and spiritual struggle. And that was exactly the problem of the scribes and the Pharisees. Their hearts were not right. Their fast was a mockery. There was no legitimate prayer concern. You will not pray with real intensity unless you have a pure heart. And you cannot have a real fast unless you have that real intensity. So it all begins with your heart. If your heart is totally consecrated to God, you will truly pray and fast. So how does Jesus say <coughs> we are to conduct ourselves when fasting? Verse 17. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Now this is interesting. The anointing he's talking about here is not a religious ritual or a special rite of some kind. But rather, it was similar to putting hair gel or hair tonic on your head. This is talked about in Ruth, uh, 2 Samuel, Matthew 26, and Luke 7. The oil was often scented, and it was used as a part of making yourself look and smell good for the day, uh, as was washing your face. So Jesus' point is that they are to look normal. They're not to do like the Pharisees who did all they could to make their appearance look haggard and pale when they fasted. Rather, Jesus says you're to take steps to make yourself look normal. Why? Verse 18. So that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He says you don't want anyone to even know that you're fasting. 
It's something that should take place between you and the Lord. Now, obviously, this means that you don't go around and just subtly drop a tidbit into your conversation with your friends about your fasting. You know, if your friend asks you what you're doing, you don't say, well, I'm a bit hungry right now, but that's okay because I'm fasting. Yeah. No, you shut up and keep that to yourself. The Lord is after an inward attitude. And he lives in that secret world that no human knows, and he will see the reality of that fast. And he's the only one who needs to know, because he's the only one who gives the real reward. So when you fast, do it without pretense. Look normal. Fix yourself up. Be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Carry yourself as you would at any other time. And God will see your heart of commitment, and he's the only one who really matters. And when your fasting and praying is heartfelt and genuine, he never fails to reward it. Because Jesus concludes by saying this, your father who sees what is done in secret, what's the next word? Will reward you. He doesn't say the father might reward you, but that he will reward you. Now let's wrap this up with two scriptures. Turn back to Zechariah 7. Zechariah 7. This is an interesting passage because God confronts the Israelites with their attitude about fasting. Zechariah 7, look at verses 4 and 5. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priest, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months these seventy years, was it actually for me that you fasted? What a question. God says, So when you were fasting two months out of every year for seventy years, did you think you did those for me? Did you think those were pleasing fasts? Verse 6, when you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves and do you not drink for yourselves? The implication is you ate and drank for your own self-interest and your fasting was just the same for your own interest. Verse 7, are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous along with its cities around it and the Negev and the foothills were inhabited? He says, I proclaim the truth to you about fasting through my former prophets when everything uh, was prosperous before I sent you off into exile. But you disobeyed my instruction and so your religious observances are meaningless. In other words, behind a fast, there must be the believable righteous life to make the fast legitimate. Verse 9, he really nails it. He tells them what a righteous life looks like. Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. And do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. In other words, when you get your heart right and you start living a life of obedience to the word of God, then you'll have a real fast that God accepts because it comes from a true heart. And then finally, <coughs> let's look at the most specific passage on fasting in the Bible. Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58. It's a confrontational statement. The Jews had fasted and thought themselves to be righteous because they did. But instead of blessing, they received judgment from God. And so they wondered why. And starting in verse 3 of Isaiah 58, God quotes them saying, Why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? In other words, they're saying, God, we've been fasting. We've been inflicting ourselves with this absence of food and we've been calling on you. Why don't you answer us? Here's God's answer, starting in the last half of verse 3. 
Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. God says, your fasts are all about your own desires. You're treating your servants badly. And when you fast, you're arguing over who does it the best and who appears to be the most spiritual. You aren't fasting in a manner which causes me to listen to you. Verse 5. Is it a fast like this which I choose a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for stretching out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? And what he's saying is, in other words, do you think that the kind of fast I want is one where all you have to do is bow down your head and wallow in sackcloth and ashes? Do you think that's what I find acceptable? <coughs> Verse 6. Now here God starts explaining what he's looking for to make their fast acceptable. Is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? In other words, instead of treating your workers like slaves, you need to let them go free. Verse 7. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? In other words... Isn't it that I want to see how, out of the motivation of a righteous heart, you truly care for the hungry and the homeless and the poor and the destitute and provide for them? Isn't the fast that I want a fast which issues from a righteous life that's lived in obedience to God's divine truth? And when you do those things and you fast like God wants you to, then starting in verse 8, he says, then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday and the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. God says, do you really want to be blessed? Fast, but fast out of a true, pure, obedient heart. A heart which is in obedience to God, cares for others, a heart that is right before me. And so we find ourselves right back in the Beatitudes again, don't we? If your character is right and your life is right, sometimes in your prayers there will be such an intensity for one thing or another that fasting will be the nat very natural corollary to your prayer. And in those times of great intensity, God will honor and bless, not because you fasted, but because your heart was so pure and your faith, your, your fast demonstrated that intensity and purity. You know, God blesses that kind of heart. That's why, that's what righteous fasting is all about. Just as an example, there have been several times when the elders have been faced with a very difficult decision about which we weren't exactly sure what the correct approach would be. Sometimes it would be a financial matter for which we had no answers. Other times it would involve a matter of church discipline or selecting a man to be an elder. We decided in those situations to collectively fast and pray about them. We didn't run out and tell the whole church to join us in fasting. Uh, and praying about those matters. We just did it ourselves. And the Lord has consistently honored that practice. We have seen him answer our prayer over and over and over again. So don't neglect the spiritual discipline of fasting in conjunction with your prayer life. It isn't something that you have to do every week or even every month. But it should be a part of your spiritual life 
whenever you have a great burden on your heart about which you are praying, but make certain that your heart is pure and right before the Lord whenever you begin such a time. I always begin those times with an intense period of confession of sin and getting my own right, heart right before the Lord before I ever pray about the matter, the issue which is the matter of concern. I, I don't want God to consider my fasting and praying like those of the Jews to whom Zechariah and Isaiah wrote. I want my heart to be right and pure, and I want my life to reflect that purity. So as I conclude, let me point out to you that when Jesus started this series dealing with these three religious practices, giving to the poor, praying, and fasting, he said at the very beginning, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, otherwise you'll have your reward for with your father. You have no reward with your father who's in heaven. And then he reiterated that same secrecy in regard to giving in verses 2 to 4 and in verses 5 to 6 about praying. And now he says it about fasting here in verses 17 and 18. The fact that Jesus repeats this instruction on secrecy in our religious observances indicates just how really important it really is. His point is that true religion, true faith, is never practiced in order to be seen by others. It's practiced to be seen by God. Now it's clear that those who give from the heart and those who pray from the heart and those who fast from the heart will be observed by some others. It's really hard to faithfully do those things without anyone noticing. But it shouldn't be that all of your Christian friends know about it. When you give, do it quietly and discreetly so that you, the only those who have to know about it are aware. And when you pray, just pray about the matters that you're concerned about and don't think that you have to run around telling all your friends about it, that you're, what you're particularly burdened to pray about. And when you're fasting, don't put on a show and make sure that your friends don't know what you're doing. Just make certain that your heart is right before the Lord, that your motives are good and righteous and pure, and then do it. But keep the details to yourself as much as humanly possible. And that brings us to the end of this series. Next week we will begin by really messing around in your personal private life. <laughs> when we start talking about how you handle money. Okay. All right. <clears throat>